Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I am feeling so grateful and inspired today. This is episode two of the second season, and I am in awe of the community that we're building. The Professional AF Podcast Insiders Facebook group is over 700 members today. And if you're not a member, please make sure to join. I see the value that we're providing each and every day to members who feel strong enough to share their challenges and opportunities with us. And I want you to get the benefit of this amazing brain trust. Today's episode is also amazing. Now, you know that I'm working on this list of 49 different things that I want to improve about myself, but you also know that I strongly feel that many times the things that we really need to improve, the ones that are going to cause the biggest changes in our lives are complete blind spots to us, things that we don't even know about. That's why I'm so grateful that my producer, Jesse, recommended that I speak with Denise Schull. Denise Schull is a decision coach and performance architect for hedge fund managers, traders, and professional athletes. She's the author of Market Mind Games, a radical psychology of making decisions and risk. And she's the inspiration for the character Wendy Rhodes in the Showtime show Billions. Denise's thesis is that there's a common misbelief that you should set your emotions aside when making a decision. And she's going to explain why this is an ineffective way to make good decisions. Based off of scientific research, we now know that it is actually impossible to make a decision without feelings. In Denise's book, I read about a study where people had brain injuries to that part of the brain that controlled our emotions. And those people were incapable of making any kind of decisions, not what they should wear, not what they should eat. It's crazy. So how do we stop ignoring our emotions and instead learn to understand them and what they're trying to tell us? Denise is also going to share the most significant question that you need to ask yourself before making any important decision, how to figure out if you're making a decision for sound reasons or because of one of the two big fears that most influence us, and the proper way to mourn a failure so that you can get over it and keep it from holding you back. Here is my conversation with Denise. So one of my first big ahas in reading the book is that our emotions and our brain process information in very different ways and that we need input from both. Is that right? I think they're completely intertwined. Like I don't, you can't separate. You think you're separating, you know, logical, factual analysis from how you feel. But the research says you're really not. In fact, there's a fair amount of evidence that we're using all parts of our brain in every kind of activity. So I don't think you can actually separate logic and feeling. We experience them somewhat differently, so it seems like they're separate. But um, what people don't recognize, like you're, you're thinking about something and you're using whatever analytical skills and tools you have. And that seems like you're focused on the facts and the analysis and whatever conclusions you're drawing. 
what you don't realize is at every second of you doing that, you're also saying, do I believe this? Do I not believe this? How much confidence in this do I have? How much confidence do I not have? And so that's like a, a, a feeling thing that's happening simultaneously to the thinking thing. But we're just taught to focus on the thinking piece of it. So I submit you can't have one without the other. Well, I love that. So I read this study a couple of years ago about uh, people who are asked to go into a room filled with posters, like lots of different, you know, wrapped up posters, and they could pick one and take it home. And there were two groups of people. Uh, the first group, they could just pick out any poster they wanted and take it home. And the second group, they had to explain why they were picking the poster that they were picking. And then they called these people 30 days after they had made their selection to see how much they liked the posters. And the group that didn't have to explain why they were picking what they were picking, they loved their poster. They're like, this is great. It's hanging up on my wall. It's fantastic. The people that had to come up with an explanation of why they chose what they chose, they just disliked their poster at a much higher rate than the first group. What... What can we learn from that? Like, I always thought it was because our gut has these feelings and we're really making decisions there in our gut. And it's really difficult to translate that into rational words. And when we try, we fail at it. Well, there may be some cheeks to that, but I think what happened in that circumstance is that people then felt like they were going to be judged um, and they had to make something make sense. And so they didn't go with their gut. Like in, in my practice, I will never ask you directly what you think or what you feel. And I won't do that because oftentimes that speaks to the ego and people think, am I thinking or feeling the right thing? And then they try to say a thing that is more what they think is thinking or feeling the right thing. I think that's what happened with the posters is that people felt on the spot and so that they should pick a poster that maybe was whatever, you know, more respectable and they came up with some reason, but it wasn't really them, right? So they did the thing they thought they should do, but it was, they weren't necessarily as true to themselves for fear of, of the justification sounding inadequate. I see. Well, so just like trying to go with our rational brain and trying to explain what it is that we think, I feel like is grossly overvalued these days. Like that's what everybody wants to make good decisions, you know, use your head. And I feel like the brain stock is overpriced. Oh, by orders of magnitude. That's my trading joke of the of the day. <laughs> and, and, and the truth is people don't even really do it, right? Like, I mean, in other words, an organization, uh, well, let me take hedge funds, for example. They will always say, uh, you have to take all the emotion out of your investment decisions. They will also say, you have to be completely convicted. Well, conviction is an emotion. It's an intense physical experience that you believe you're right. Like, you can't do both. Well, the same thing happens, you know, on one hand, someone will be, uh, admonished to be logical and rational, but they have to be confident about it. Well, the confidence is feeling, or the lack thereof is also a feeling, and the lack thereof may have a piece of information in it. I mean, you're absolutely right. The so-called rational, logical brain is oh, way overvalued. I mean, it's destructive, actually. How is it destructive? Like, what are the negative consequences of trying to keep our emotions out of it? Well, you miss all of the information. So, for example, we go back to the financial crisis. There were many, many people on Wall Street in 2005 and 2006 who knew we had a problem in the mortgage market. 
but you could not stand up in a meeting in a bank and say, I feel I'm afraid where this is going. My gut tells me this, this market's getting overheated. People would say, yeah, but the numbers say and the model will say. So there was all kinds of recognition, unconscious pattern recognition, that that market was getting overheated and headed for trouble. But no one took it seriously because no one was allowed to listen to feelings. They'd taken it seriously in 2005 and six. it would have never gotten as bad as it did, and we probably would have avoided a financial crisis. So in order to make better decisions at work, we need to listen to our guts and our emotions because there's these secrets and how we feel. I mean, almost instinct and in, in how our body responds to it. That's different than how our rational brain thinks about it. Yeah. So the question to learn to ask yourself is what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? And the answer to why is going to exist in layers and they'll probably be a relevant part and an irrelevant part. Now, you can learn to distinguish relevant from irrelevant as you get to know yourself with this exercise over time. The layers will be sort of the superficial thing you're afraid of. Like in trading, it'll be fear of missing out. But then a deeper layer of that will be fear of being wrong. And then a deeper layer will be fear of mis- losing your job. And a deeper layer maybe, you know, oh, and I'm going to be a failure forever. Um, maybe people go into their own personal stuff. But um, what happens literally in a human being. I mean, why do we hire someone with experience? We prefer someone with experience over the recent college graduate because the person with experience has a feel for the situation. And what does a feel mean? They, they have really subsumed the, the step-by-step information. And they don't have to think literally step-by-step to accomplish something. What's, they, what's their experience of that? Their experience is they just know how to do it. They don't have to do, you know, do this, do that, then do this. They don't have to follow the recipe because they just know, well, that's what happens. As you gain expertise, the information, the knowledge exists on a feeling level, not on an explicit, logical, cognitive level. So what about when I'm making decisions at work? I'm thinking about whether to hire somebody, whether to launch a new initiative. And, you know, there's all this research that says, you know, we just hire the people that we like and our feelings about them are misleading. How do I use this to make better decisions at work? Well, I do, I do want to point out how much effort and analysis goes into people ultimately acting out their feelings and hiring people they like, right? There's a gargantuan industry of, of human resources and testing to find candidates that will be best suited and ignore how you feel about it. But at the end of the day, when you look back, research shows that people hire people they like. So in other words, they acted on their feelings. If making your feelings part of the data set, uh, the discussion were acceptable and respected, you could get on out on the table. I see. Who people like, who people don't like. Yeah. And then once it's explicit, you can discuss it. And then there's a chance of hiring not the person that everyone just liked the most. So you're saying we're already making decisions based on emotion. It's just that we're not saying it out loud. So if we had a meeting and we were like, I, I just I just like Jessie. <laughs> she feels she feels right because I relate to her. You know, I'm saying all my feelings out loud. I'm going to make a better decision just by saying out loud how I feel about it. Yes. The research is overwhelming that everything we do, we do because of how we feel. Like everything we do, every decision we make, every choice we make is ultimately because of how we feel. Yet we're told to not listen to how we feel. 
it's, it's a ruse. It's like a, it's a myth. So anyone who's willing to believe that, and believe me, I can bury you or anyone that asked me to speak in research where time after time after time, the conclusion is it's the emotion that matters. It's the feeling that matters. So like that's just this whole data set of human percep perception, judgment, analysis that it, it, it's a competitive edge opportunity if people want to take it on. And it, it's like a flat earth, round earth thing. The world's still, you know, this logical cognitive is flat earth. And if we're like hesitating to make a decision, so you're thinking about whether to take a new job or, or where to even apply you have all these feelings that are driving you in certain directions, but you think you need to shove them down. And instead, I know you encourage people to give like a label to whatever they're feeling. Yeah. So write down every single feeling and then categorize them uh, as relevant, irrelevant, as about your personal life, about your professional life, you know, um, figure out what common aspects you can put different things in buckets and then prioritize your feelings. You want to prioritize your feelings, you'll make a better decision for yourself. So let's say I'm prioritizing my feelings about how I think about applying for a new job or taking a new job. How will that help me make a better decision? You'll be more true to yourself. Um, you'll know, you'll be more true to yourself, but you'll be more true to yourself by avoiding making the decision on the factors that actually aren't as important to you. So you talk about playing poker in your book. This is going to be the second time we've covered the game of poker as this exceptional tool to the decision-making process. One of the topics that I, I really liked was thinking about your decisions, like after you've made a decision to make additional decisions to call, raise, or fold. And I spend a lot of time with companies that will build a business case to support a decision. Like we should definitely invest in this product or or launch something new, and then they usually never look back. So how do I encourage them to add this kind of decision-making process to their process, to fold, raise, or call? Being less afraid of being wrong, having an environment where it's less of a problem to make a mistake is what allows people to do that. Uh, it's too hard for people to look at a mistake. Like everyone, everyone goes into denial. So they just like either pretend it's working and you know fix it around the edges or go on to the next thing. But if you make it okay to, for example, feel frustrated or disappointed or embarrassed or afraid of what will happen if you admit to a mistake, then it's easier to reevaluate the decision in process. How do you teach traders? Do they have a process already to like go back? on decisions that they've made in a certain period of time? How do I just add that into their decision-making? Well, traders generally are pretty good about keeping track of their decisions and figuring out what their pattern of mistakes is. That's one of the things I always liked about trading so well as opposed to a corporate environment is you've got this immediate feedback and you can analyze what you did and how, how that happened and, you know, most people who start trading are encouraged to keep trading journals. Oh, can you tell me what that's like? Because in the corporate environment, like it's really difficult to measure progress. You know, like if I start working with a team, how can I demonstrate that it made any difference? Well, you know, that is, are people going to um, track decisions that worked out well and decisions that didn't work out well? 
Um, and are they going to discuss both? Like, is there some organizational mechanism, you know, once a week, once a month, once a quarter, to evaluate the quality of our decisions, to keep track of the data and discuss what happened and why it happened um, in a way that is not that threatening, where people are, are, are put in a situation where it's okay to admit, I made a mistake, I was wrong here, this didn't work out for this reason, um, now how do we fix it? But that comes from, you know, it comes from, is the leadership going to make it okay uh, to, to talk about failure? And are people going to feel like it's okay to, to not only talk about failure, but to bring up the anticipation of a failure as soon as possible in the process? So are you telling me that at really successful trading firms, they sit around and talk about bad decisions. I mean, it's just, it's really difficult for me to believe that. So please. Oh like. yeah. Yeah. They do postmortems all the time. They, they, it's, it's almost standard operating procedure in hedge funds to review what went wrong and why it went wrong. Like every, I mean, that's really common in the hedge fund trading world to do that on a regular basis. But they don't just say, I, I mean, I know a lot of companies that have postmortems, but usually they're like, you know, the economy, you know, like they just have all kinds of reasons why it wasn't the decision making process. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, some of that happens, right? Like people will be defensive, of course, and resistant to really knowing or, you know, unable to have a strength of ego to take the blame. But honestly, there is a, a lot of good work that goes on in that in hedge funds. You know, one of the questions I like to ask when I talk to groups is for for them to think about what percent of their daily decisions are wrong, like either just plain out they made the wrong decision or there could have been a much better decision to make. And people will say 10 percent, 15 percent. But the, the reality is they've never even thought about it. You know, that's the big aha. And once you do think about it, it's it's probably like 50%. You know, like, so poker strategy, decision-making strategy says roughly 50%. And if you don't know which of those decisions are wrong, if you're not looking for the evidence, well, you're never going to find that evidence. Yeah, right. And you're not going to get any better at um, interacting with a similar decision in the future. I mean, you're going to make the same mistake over and over and over. You don't know what you did wrong and why you did it. You're going to do it again. So a lot of our audience uh, is women. Do you think that women have any kind of advantage or disadvantage when it comes to, you know, looking at feelings or thinking about their feelings when it comes to decision making? Oh, I think they definitely have an advantage. Oh. And not on Wall Street. Okay. But, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, obviously this is emphasis on generally, women are not socialized to run roughshod over their feelings. Generally speaking, men are. So obviously that's, again, general. In any given family, you know, that can be different. But it is much more acceptable for women to have their feelings. So generally speaking, they have more access to them. I see. They're not afraid of them. They don't disrespect them, generally speaking, in the same way that men do. Uh, because, like, for example, I'm working with uh, 
the pit crews of Hendrick Motorsports, and they are all like former, well, not all, but almost all of them are former NCAA college football players. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so a few of them are other from other disciplines, baseball playing, surfing, things like that. But anyway, they're like, Denise, like what we were taught to do was bang our head against the wall. <laughs> Just shove it deep, deep down. Yeah, yeah. Women were never, you know, generally speaking, there are very few women in the world who have been told the way to deal with their feelings is to bang their head against the wall. Since we have not had to deal with that sort of level of ridiculousness, um, we generally have uh, an advantage. Like we might be able to find the feeling and analyze it in, in a way that's easier than if we were told to bang our head against the wall. Well, I'll be sure not to start that as a as a new strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, this episode is all about trusting your feelings to make much better decisions. And I think the best place for somebody to start is to think about how they feel about their current banking relationship. Like, how did you used to feel with other banks before you went to NBKC Bank? Uh, Highly suspicious at best. (laughs) At best. Like, maybe apathetic is how you feel about your current banking relationship, but not great. Not these people are looking out for my best interests. Not this is so intuitive. How does it work in such a great way? I would remind everybody that this season we reached out to advertisers we just really liked and said, hey, we would just like to talk about you. NBKC did not call us. We called them because we love the relationship so much. I opened an account in five minutes in my pajamas at 1030 p.m. It was so easy. They make it a prerogative to actually be helpful. Like that's in their like internal written stuff. It's like actually helpful. I'll give you an example. NBKC has no limits on how much you can deposit through mobile deposit. When I heard that, I said, that sounds crazy. How can you do that? And that's because I've been conditioned by my previous bank with arbitrary rules that didn't make any sense. And that just doesn't exist. Every time I have an interaction with NBKC, I'm like, wow. That feels so right. When you think about it, there really shouldn't be any limits on how many pictures of checks you can send to your bank. (laughs) And NBKC is like, yeah, that's stupid. We wouldn't have limits on that. NBKC is a member FDIC, an equal housing lender, and they have designed me my very own page on their official NBKC website. So you go to NBKC.com slash Diana to see what a different bank looks like and feels like. I want you to use everything you learned in this episode. Go to the website, nbkc.com slash Diana and see how you feel. I promise this is going to be a very different banking experience. So I want to talk about the fears that people deal with at work. Uh, The first one you mentioned is the fear of missing out and Uh, its role in investing in business. So I watched this documentary recently on Theranos, the failed blood testing company, and they raised almost a billion dollars and they had these huge contracts from the government, big companies that didn't do any due diligence because there were executives who were like, I don't want our competitors to get it. And I feel like I see thinking like this all the time. So how can we know if we have like fear of missing out affecting our work and what can we do to help not have it have such an impact? Everyone should assume they always are going to be dealing with fear of missing out, like just accept that there's fear of missing out and rank it like one to five, how intense it is, uh, put it into words so that you know when like you're three, four or five, like 
it's really suspect. You don't want to be doing it if it's, if it's intense. If you have zero fear of missing out, you probably won't do anything, um, which is something a trader actually pointed out to me. But when it becomes a more intense physical experience, which is, again, back to people learning their own like encyclopedia of their how things feel, you know, it's, it's like a warning flag. Like once you have the warning flag, it doesn't mean, okay, no way should you do that. But it means like, okay, you need to do triple the due diligence on whether this is a good idea because you're so driven by the urgency of the fear of missing out. Instead of none at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for, the, for the person, it's like just accept it and expect it to be there. Right. And then quantify it and analyze it. Understand what it's telling you and where it's coming from. I like that. That's very, very powerful. And, you know, be very suspicious if it's at a high level. Okay, well, let's talk about the other side of fear, which is the fear of failure. And here I do want to get into investing a little, if only to share my personal story and get like private mentorship from you. So this is my embarrassing experience as a trader. When I was 23 and in law school, I wanted to try investing and I took our tiny amount of savings that was supposed to go towards buying furniture for our house. And I invested it all in Apple stock at $35 a share. And when we graduated law school, uh, this has turned into a ton of money. And so I, I sold it and I deemed myself a genius investor. And of course, as soon as I started getting a salary, I immediately began day trading because that's what I thought I was good at. And then I began trading oil related stocks because that's what traders did. And at this point, like nothing seemed to make sense. So like, the news had the opposite effect on stocks. I, I had no idea what was going on. And I lost almost all the money that I'd made before. And then to like compound matters, because I was day trading and I didn't know the rules, you can't use your losses to offset your gains. So I ended up paying, you know, taxes on all that money I made that I no longer had. And that was a very painful lesson. And, and for the last 15 years, I have stayed away from the market. I, I had dug in with my feelings because I always thought like, it's not a good time. That's what I said to myself. And uh, so now I've gotten up the courage. I got a financial advisor. She's awesome. Uh, but now literally today feels like the absolute worst time to get into the market that it's ever been. So how can I use my emotions to make a better decision now about, you know, I just, I have a fear of failure that's so strong from this experience so long ago, it's almost hard to overcome. And I feel like at work, people don't take a promotion or don't go for something that they might want to because like, ah, oh, what if it doesn't work out? So what's a good way to get in touch with my emotions? Well, so like in that particular case, there is a, like a morning remorse cycle that needs to happen over, over the, that mistake. So there's actual research that says, like, if you really write how you feel about a failure, and frankly, let it rip, you know, again, like, like how you really feel about it, which everybody will get to, like, it's the human condition at the end of the day to feel embarrassed or ashamed, you know, or afraid of if you did this again, what it means to your future, everyone catastrophizes. So let me just give everyone permission to admit that. Uh, because in working through the emotions on paper has been shown to help people get over things. I love that concept so much. The concept of mourning losses. I feel like, again, because we are 
we are taught to like suppress our feelings in most corporate environments. Whenever something doesn't work out, they literally never speak of it again. It's like a, a weird thing that never happened until it repeats itself a couple of years later. So do you have any morning advice on like how, how to ad- address it and sit with it? Cause that's one of the things you say, like you really have to spend some time feeling bad about it instead of just moving on. Like all, you know, people have like what they're, um, criticizing themselves about what they should have done differently, um, what they feel embarrassed about, what they feel ashamed about, what they're afraid about going forward. You've got to get all those out. Like, what's the criticism? What's the embarrassment? What's the shame? What's the fear? Um, And realize that those feelings are all going to feel more intense and more threatening than, than they actually are, and that than the world actually is. If you find out what you're really upset about and what the sort of worst thing that can happen from here is, oftentimes when people confront that directly, they go, oh, well, either that's not actually as bad as it seemed at first glance, or, oh, that's unlikely to happen, or, oh, well, you know what? All things considered, I'll take that risk. But they're never able to bring themselves to that point when they're trying to avoid looking at the unpleasant feelings, which, oh, by the way, there's all kinds of cultural pressure that you're not supposed to have any of those feelings. <laughs> admit them in. And if you admit them, it's going to make it more that way. So what's the goal uh, for somebody who becomes one of your clients? Where, where are you trying to move them from and to move them to? Like, where can we, the audience of the show, kind of move towards? Oh, I will. It's always be their, like, absolute best self like do the things they, in my case, do the things they didn't even realize they could. Or oftentimes it's the become the person, you know, achieve the, the level of success that it seems like they should have been able to, but something's been standing in their way. So reach the promise and then let's figure out what's really in the way because oftentimes the things that seem to be in the way at the end of the day, they are kind of a result of using thinking uh, to the exclusion of feeling. And once you bring up all the, the fears about creating that success and untangle all of them, like a bowl of spaghetti, it becomes way easier to take the next step towards that and then the step after that. So you help people stop sabotaging themselves. Totally. And, and by the way, I'll give you a secret. A lot of self-sabotage comes from an inability to admit what we're really angry about. So we turn the anger on ourselves uh, because we're too afraid to admit it or too afraid what will happen if we admit it. Um, instead, we, um, we somehow make it our fault. Um, it starts when we're kids, by the way. Like, as a kid, when you have no control over what's happening in your household, the safest thing for the kid to do is to say, well, it's my fault. Like, if I behave differently, mom and dad wouldn't have fought, or, you know, I behave differently, and I can give tragic examples here, but, you know, this horrible thing wouldn't have happened. So that blaming things on ourselves while we're growing up is actually helpful, but people tend to not unlearn that habit and then blame themselves for too many things. and, and that gets in their way. Mm-hmm. But if they're able to 
get in touch with actually what is um, aggravating, frustrating, rage creating, um, and own the anger. And this is a big, it's really hard for people to do, but it is totally doable. Um, people find themselves really freed up to become like way closer to their full potential. Well, I want to leave on a on a high note, Denise. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, if somebody wants to get on this journey to start making better decisions by being more in touch with their emotions, what are some things that they can do? Like already, I'm thinking that as part of my decision-making process, I need to have a blank for I feel, you know, just to even write it out. But what are some things that people can do to help their decision-making process this week? Ask yourself, what are you feeling and why? let all of the answers that there are, then try to figure out, identify which of those feelings are really germane to the situation. Uh, Jennifer Lerner of Harvard would say which ones are integral. I would say which ones are um, informational. And hey, like ask, research those. What's that really about? Why do I really feel that way? Um, just treat it as information. Treat your own feelings is information and don't be afraid of any of them uh, and keep doing it like you would do on a piece of data you know you'll go to find this piece of data and then you'll put it together with this other piece of data and then that will create this analysis and this prediction right that's what we do with the facts of our business lives you know the marketing budget or the marketing results or the sales results or the, the product development results we like get data we analyze it we say that means this but you do the same thing with what you're feeling and why the trick then becomes like what's informational and what's irrelevant. That's a skill to develop. Um, obviously, there's my book, which is about you know, trading and investing, although I think it's about risk decision making in general. But there's a couple of other books. Um, there's one called Emotional Agility by Jennifer Joyner of Harvard. That's a great book. Okay. Um, there's another one called Incognito by David Eagleman, who's a neuroscientist. That's about how you know the vast majority of what we think and feel is unknown to us. <laughs> That's be depressing, but like, you know, there's a, but the point, but the good news is given that that's true, there's like this whole world of performance data and helpful data, data you can get to if you start to be willing to find out what's in your unconscious. And not to judge it, right? Because then you're going to pick a poster that you're actually happy with, as opposed to pick the one you think you should. Yeah. yeah. No judging yourself. And the best thing you can do for you know your friends and family when they're trying to talk to you is no judging for them. Um, like if thoughts and feelings, when you're having them, are just thoughts and feelings. They don't mean anything. They're not going to, and despite all of the talk about that, you know, negative thoughts or feelings are going to create negative results. It doesn't really work like that. Denise, any final words, things that you want people to know or to remember? All your feelings in your their pure form are meant to help you. Ooh, that was awesome. The most powerful line for me out of the whole conversation was that whether we make mistakes is not a question. We all make mistakes. How do you figure out your pattern of mistakes? I'm gonna be thinking about that all week. Big, big thank you to my producer, Jesse Jacob, for recommending Denise. And if you've made it to this part of the show, I know your big question is, could there be even more awesomeness here? And the answer is, of course, obviously. Look, this season is gonna be unbelievable. It is raining knowledge over here at Professional AF, and I think you should do yourself a favor and subscribe to the show so that you know when more amazing content is available. And please do me a favor, the favor of subscribing, that's for you. For me, 
Could you review the show wherever you listen to it? These reviews, they let people know that we're legit, that it's not just me out here. <laughs> people actually listen to the show and it's worth their time to check it out. And finally, these episodes are like a delicious hard seltzer. They are not designed to be consumed alone. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend that needs to hear it or somebody that you want to have a conversation with about how to make better decisions together. And if you want to join an amazing community of people as fun as your friends, then you should really check out the Professional AF Podcast Insiders Facebook page. It is a place to create meetups in your city with other people enjoying the show, ask about professional challenges that you're struggling with. I want you to come and join in the party. I am Diana Kander with your weekly reminder that curiosity is your superpower. Lean into it and it will help you unlock whatever challenges stand before you. I'll talk to you next week. 